Let's take our Bibles and turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And for just the few minutes that we have remaining here today, I want to talk to you on the topic, don't differentiate. Don't differentiate. James chapter 2, verse number 1. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do, not, do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Father God, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the words of, of James that we've been studying. I pray today that you'll fill me with your spirit as I... Uh, attempt, Lord, to preach it and proclaim it. I pray, Father, that the things that come forth with my, from my mouth would be what ought to, that you'll protect me from saying anything I should not. Uh, help it to be clear and accurate and practical, and help us, Father, to be changed by it today. All of us, Lord, need to be changed by the word every day. And so I pray that would happen today. Bless this message. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the text this morning is verse number one. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. James, in one of his many imperative statements in this little letter, is saying quite plainly here, don't show partiality. Don't differentiate between types of people. And so as I've been reading this and thinking through this and praying about it, I have to ask myself the question, do we ever do that? You ought to ask yourself the question. Do you ever do that? I mean, I, I need to look deep in my heart and ask myself, do I ever differentiate between people? Amy this morning had no idea I was going to use this particular illustration, but it was just extremely appropriate that she decided today to do our little handshaking ritual that we do from time to time. You know, we do that every once in a while. Uh, we'll just allow people to stand and greet during a song. Well, I read a story here not too long ago. Actually, it was a cartoon in... Leadership Journal, and cartoonist Brett Legg had drawn a cartoon that pictured that particular part of a service, but in this case, uh, the song leader didn't say what Amy said. The song leader stood up and said, now while the instruments play, please shake hands with two people who are not in your clique. <laughs> do we ever do that? Does that hit a little too close to home sometimes? Such a simple illustration that James provides here, doesn't he? We can all immediately understand what he's talking about. Two different people come into the church. One is rich, one is poor. You treat one well and you treat one poorly. 
We could all understand, we can all relate to that kind of a situation, but we have to ask ourselves, do we ever do that? Do you ever do that? Do I ever? I read some time ago about a church that was in the process of calling a new pastor. It was a big service planned. The new pastor was going to be there on this day. And uh, everybody was all excited about it. They all arrived that day, and ushers were back, back at the door passing out the bulletins, and the praise team was up here getting ready for the service, and the sound people were in the back room, uh, you know, making sure all the technology was okay, and everybody was fellowshipping and was laughing and, and just having a good old time. Everybody was prepared for this big day. When all of a sudden something happened that day that had not happened at this church before. A man walked through the back door, and he was not the normal attender of that church. He was dressed in rotten clothes. He was hair unkempt, beard straggly, looked a little bit like one of the Duck Dynasty guys. <laughs> he, was, uh, he smelled bad. He was dirty. He gave every impression he'd been sleeping in the street. He was carrying a backpack that seemed possibly to contain every possession that he had on earth. And he walked up to the ushers as they were standing there, and a smile vanished off their face and was replaced more with you know, one of those kind of fake smiles that we have when we're uncomfortable. They went ahead and handed him a bulletin, and he walked by. Nobody shook his hand. The place was full that day because it was a big day. And he made his way down trying to find a place to sit. Nobody was shaking his hand. People would smile at him a little bit, but it kind of parts. You know how, how that is. When people are uncomfortable, the seat just kind of parts to make way. We, we just accidentally look the other way. The guy he would see a place at the end of a pew where there might have been a place to sit, but when he'd get there, there'd be a coat laying there, as if somebody was saving it for somebody else. And he finally made his way. The only place to sit, as in most churches, the one place where you can always find a seat, is on the front row. And he went up and he sat down. Well, the service began. Pastor hadn't showed up, and everybody was looking around saying, what? This is not a good sign. You know, here it is, his very first day, and the pastor doesn't show up for the service. And so there was all this murmuring going on. But the service began, the song service was okay, and somebody else stood up and did the announcements, and somebody else stood up and, and read the scripture and things like that and prayed. And finally, it was time for the sermon. Pastor hadn't showed up, and somebody stood up. One of the deacons stood up, and they were going to apologize and say, I don't know what has happened when all of a sudden that homeless fellow stood up off the front. And he walked into the pulpit, and he looked at the people, and he said, my text for this morning, James chapter 2, verse number 1. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Do we ever do that? Well, James says we ought not to do so. And we could outline his teaching this morning like this. Verse number 1 is the command. We've seen that. Don't do it. Verses 2 through 4 is an example. Very simple. We really don't need to explain it. And we already kind of have. But verses 5 through 13, he talks about the reasons. Why? The command don't differentiate. The example, rich versus poor, and our tendency to differentiate there. But he gives a couple of reasons why we ought not to. And so in the time that remains this morning, I want to talk about those. Why ought we not to differentiate between people? Why should we not show partiality? Three reasons. Number one, verses 5 through 7. Don't differentiate because doing so is hypocrisy. Doing so is hypocrisy. You know, in another passage, 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 20, we learn that how we treat others is a barometer of our spiritual condition. It tells what we're really like, what our relationship with God really is. John said, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, 
he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? James is saying something very similar, is he not? In verse number 5, listen, my brethren, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? James is saying, you say here that the most important thing in a person's life is their relationship with God. But when the time comes, you're putting riches above what you say is most important. Smacks of hypocrisy a little bit, does it not? We ought not to differentiate because it's hypocritical. James is saying in verse number five that the poor are rich. They're rich in the very thing that we think is, or at least we say we think, is the most important, their faith. They're rich in faith, the most important thing. Now, we need to recognize James is not saying here that because a person is poor, they're saved. And that because a person is rich, they're going to hell. He is not saying that, nothing like that. Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus. You remember that in Luke chapter 16? And in that story, the rich man, uh, who was a lost man, died and went straight to hell. And the poor man, Lazarus, died and went straight to heaven. And some people might read that and say, well, looky there. Poor people go to, uh, poor people go to heaven and rich people go to hell. That's not what he was saying. At all. Your financial status has nothing to do with salvation. If you're rich, you cannot buy your way to heaven. And if you're poor, there is no handout going to be given to you. We're all saved the same way, poor or rich, by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 8, for by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves. Gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But on the other hand, if the Bible is true, and it is, it is. Pretty clear, isn't it, that God has generally saved more poor people than rich? You say, where are you getting that? Well, how about the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 18, when he said how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Or how about the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? You see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And so James is taking all this just a step further and saying that poor people are generally richer in faith. And we ask why, why that would be. And I don't know, one, com- one commentator suggested that since they have no other wealth, they prize more the wealth they have in Jesus Christ, maybe. I don't know. But I wonder, do we see the hypocrisy of saying that the one thing we value the most, faith, is of no value? Do we see the hypocrisy in making such distinctions and in showing such partiality. Jesus saw something in the poor widow and her mite as she dropped her two mites in the offering. She saw something in her that he did not see in the rich Pharisee as he poured a huge offering into the plate. Brothers and sisters, when we differentiate or show partiality, we are demonstrating hypocrisy. Hypocrisy in that the thing we say we value the most, we reject in others. It's hypocrisy to judge others. To hold ourselves up as a standard others must reach, rather than recognizing we all must reach the same standard. One man wrote a book called Why Sin Matters. Mark McGinn, his name. 
He said this. He said, when we, are, when we see ourselves as pretty good, we misunderstand the gravity of sin and our desperate need for grace. We place ourselves above others, become their judges, and give them the power to disappoint us. A physicist friend uses this analogy. Each of us is like a light bulb. One shines with 50 watts of holiness. Another has only 25 watts. Maybe the most stellar Christians are 200 watts. But these comparisons become trite in the presence of the sun. And in the face of God, our different levels of piety are puny and meaningless. It makes no sense to compare ourselves with one another because we are all much more alike than we are different. So don't differentiate, number one, because it's hypocrisy. Number two, don't differentiate because doing so is sin. Sin, verses 8 through 13. He speaks in verse number 8 of the royal law. Where is that? Verse number 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The royal law. What in the world is the royal law? Well, he tells us there what the royal law is. It's quite simply what some have called the king of laws. And maybe that's what James was thinking of when he used that phrase, the royal law. It's, it's one half of the two commandments that Jesus said were the greatest commandments. In Matthew chapter 22, a lawyer asked Jesus a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments, saying all the law and the prophets. Bill Gaither took those verses and wrote a song, a little chorus, just a beautiful chorus, loving God and loving each other. The story never ends. You know how true it is. That's the royal law. Love God and love each other. So notice what James is saying here. James is saying, if that's what you're doing, if you're living according to that royal law, well, that's great. You ought to be living according to that royal law. We all should be living according to that royal law. It's the great commandment. But he says, if you're really living by that law. Did you notice the use of the word really there? Every word in the Bible is important. If you're really living according to that law, he says. Well, you're going to have to show love for the poor. You have to show love for the poor. The royal law demands no less, and so we must not differentiate because, as he says in verse number 9, to do so would be sin. Before we move off this point, it's interesting. It's interesting something that James is talking about here. In verses 10 through 11, he kind of expands his argument a little bit and goes into a more general thing. Remember I said... I think I've said it a couple times now. From the very beginning of this study, I pointed out that James is a very practical book. has a lot of practical teaching, but it's not very doctrinal. And I've read that in several commentaries. And as I've studied now and get a little further into it, I'm starting to back off that position. Because there's some statements that James makes that are very important, very doctrinal, very helpful to us here. And here's one of them in verses 10 through 11. Whoever shall keep the whole law... And yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. He's explaining here what it means to be a sinner. He's explaining to us why we are sinners and why we need a savior. I think he was warning his readers about the danger of selective obedience. You know, that was the big problem with the Pharisees. 
The Pharisees were real good. They were meticulous. They were scrupulous about obeying certain of the laws and completely ignoring some of the others. And he's saying here that's, that's just not possible. There's a fallacy in that thinking. To disobey the law in any one place is to break the entire law. It's to become a transgressor of the law, the law as a whole. The law as a whole is a moral code that God demands of us in its entirety. It is not enough for us to say, I can keep this part of the law. We must keep it all. Or we are transgressors of the law. Deuteronomy chapter 27, cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law. One commentator said to break one link in a chain is to break the chain. What a reminder to us of why we so desperately needed a Savior. Can you do that? Can you keep every part of the law? One of the things I like to do when I'm sharing the gospel with folks is to go to the Ten Commandments. And you say, why? Are you trying to tell them that if they keep the Ten Commandments, they'll go to heaven? No. Because I want them to see from the Ten Commandments that they can't. They can't keep them all. It's impossible. It's impossible. James is doing the same thing. That's exactly what he's doing here. He's accepting the fact that some of, his, some of his readers might be able to say, you know that commandment that says thou shalt not murder? I can keep that just fine, James. And he says, oh yeah, how about this one? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Can you keep that one? And there's none of us that can keep any, all of them. None of us. I doubt that any of us can keep any of them all the time. So the law shows the standard God requires. And as we gaze into it, we see how very short we fall. Well, don't differentiate because doing so is hypocritical. Don't differentiate because doing so is sinful. And finally, number three, don't differentiate because doing so is forgetful. Forgetful, and I have to confess to you that I'm expanding on James here. This I'm not getting from James. I'm sneaking away to some other places because the fact is, as I think about this topic, I think there's a couple of other reasons. And this is one. Being partial and differentiating between, between people. Uh, we're forgetful when we're doing We're forgetful of some things. We're forgetful, for example, that what we are, that we are what we are, whether rich or poor, not because of our own efforts, but because of the will of and grace of God. You do know that, right? We are what we are, not because of our own efforts but because of the will of and grace of God. Amen? I preached something similar to this one day, and we had a visitor in the services that day. As I recall, he sat right back about there somewhere, and it was his first time here, and I could tell he was extremely uncomfortable during the message, and I never saw him again after that day. And I, 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 somebody in the, in the service knew him, and I was talking later and inquiring about him and how, how he liked the service, and they said he was extremely offended, and he will not be back. And what he was offended about was this very thought. He believed he had earned all that he had. That he had made himself what he was. He was the type that believes in the self-made man type thing. And for me to stand here and ascribe his state to God's will and God's grace offended him. Never saw him again. But the Bible is so clear. Look, 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse number 7 says, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. How much clearer can it be? It's as simple as, as we can think of. He brings low and he lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory for the pillars of the earth of the Lord's. He has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength no man shall prevail. When we show partiality, are we not forgetting these things? Are we not forgetting that we are what we are because God has made us so? Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
We can neither boast of our riches nor complain of our poverty because God has made us as he has chosen. It's the will of God and the grace of God that has determined our state. I love the way Paul said it in his letter to the Corinthians. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Who makes you differ from another? What do you have that you did not receive? If you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had received it? What do you have that you did not receive? Every time I come across that in my Bible reading, I have to stop and think about that. We're forgetful that all that we have is by the grace of and the will of God. I think we're forgetful of something else. We're forgetful that Jesus was poor and despised. When we are showing partiality toward the poor, when we mistreat the poor and despised, are we not mistreating that which Jesus was? Isaiah chapter 53 and verse number 1, Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form, no comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Jesus said one time, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. How do we look down on the poor? We're looking down on Jesus himself. Forgetful. And one other. I think we're forgetful that God shows no partiality, makes no distinctions toward any of us. How can we forget that? Romans chapter 2 and verse 11, there's no partiality with God. Ephesians chapter 6, you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Colossians 3.25, he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done and there is no partiality. One day the enemies of Jesus came to him in the street. They even had to admit this. We know that you show no partiality. They said in Matthew chapter 22 and verse number 16, Teacher, we know that you are true. Teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of man. How do we not praise God? How do we not praise God every time we think of the fact he did not look upon our unworthiness, but took us just as we were? Amen. He showed no partiality toward us. Charlotte Elliott wrote the words in 1835. We, we sing them all the time as, as an invitation song. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. That's all he asked of us. Do we forget when we look at somebody else? When we look at the poor tattered fellow who's walking down the aisle? Do we forget that the same impartiality Christ showed to us, the same invitation to come just as I am, applies to them as well? Have we become so forgetful that he showed no partiality toward us? Just as I am poor, wretched, blind, sight riches and healing of the mind. Yea, all I need and need to find, O Lamb of God, I come. Have we forgotten that? One man said, Jesus loved without discrimination, without looking at our worthiness. Let us not become forgetful. Let us not forget for, become forgetful of any of these things. Forgetful that Jesus loved us without partiality, and he therefore loves them without partiality too. And so there's the command. My brethren, have not, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Don't show partiality. Don't differentiate. That's the command. And the example James gave was one that we can all relate to, making a difference, a distinction between rich and poor. But I think that was just an example. 
I think the command actually applies to any type of partiality that we might demonstrate one to another. And the reasons we shouldn't differentiate, because doing so is hypocrisy, because doing so is sin, because doing so is forgetful. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. So, how are we doing with this? How are we doing with this? It's not an easy command to obey, is it? We all struggle with it to a certain extent. I think, in a way, it's where the rubber meets the road. I think it's kind of the demonstration of our theology. We can talk a lot about the things we believe, but this tells us whether or not we really believe them. Many of us have a wonderful orthodoxy, but a terrible orthopraxy. Everybody know what that word means? Orthodoxy, right doctrine. Orthopraxy, right actions. Jonah was an example of that. Remember? Jonah in the Old Testament was a great preacher. He had great theology. And he hated people. And he was mad at God. He had great orthodoxy, but terrible orthopraxy. Well, we need them both. Let me close with just a couple quotes from others as they summed up this passage. One man said, Christian love does not mean that I must like a person and agree with him on everything. I may not like his vocabulary or his habits, and I may not want him for an intimate friend. Christian love means treating others the way God has treated me. It is an act of the will, not an emotion that I try to manufacture. So, brothers and sisters, let's treat others the way Christ has treated us. Warren Wiersbe said it's really quite simple. Look at everyone through the eyes of Christ. If the visitor is a Christian, we can accept him because Christ lives in him. If he is not a Christian, we can receive him because Christ died for him. And so can we not, brothers and sisters, look at everyone through the eyes of Christ. And let us remember that God can use even the most unlikely person to do amazing and wonderful things. To bring glory to his name. He used loudmouth, egotistical Peter. Amen. He used dishonest and thieving Zacchaeus. He used lazy and and unreliable John Mark. He even used murdering and hateful Saul of Tarsus. He used the immoral woman at the well. And he even used those who were possessed by demons. People like Mary Magdalene and the maniac of Gadara. Oh, and you know what else? He used rich men like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Let us look at everyone as a potential Apostle Paul. We might look at somebody and think it is simply impossible that they could ever be used that way, but God does not see them that way. And in the eyes of God, they certainly could be the next Apostle Paul.